Hello, and thank you for joining us for this fifth webinar in our 2022 Science and Life series on rare diseases. Today's discussion is entitled, Knowledge is Power, the Urgent Need to Internationalize Databases for Rare Disease Patients. My name is Sean Sanders, and I'm the Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, as well as moderator for this roundtable discussion. This webinar is part of a six-part series on rare diseases that launched in April this year. We've discussed who the stakeholders are that need to be involved to have the greatest impact on rare diseases, investigating the role of innovation centers and centers of excellence, how personalized medicine intersects with the rare disease field, and improving care for patients with rare diseases in under-resourced communities and countries. Today's webinar will look at a topic that has come up frequently in previous webinars, the need for comprehensive registries that can track patient data to assist researchers and clinicians. We'll discuss the critical factors in setting up these registries, best practices for collecting and maintaining the data, and how successes can be replicated around the world. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome our wonderful panel. I'm going to give each of them a chance to introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Dominica Taruscio. Uh, thank you for being uh, here with us, Dominica. Great to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Dominica Taruscio. I work at the National Health Institute, which is Instituto Superiore di Sanità, in particular at the National uh, Center for Rare Diseases. I'm a medical doctor and uh, by uh, profession, I'm a histopathology and I performed my postdoc at Yale University in human genetics. Thank you so much, Dominica. Uh, next, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Lucia Monaco. Uh, Lucia, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me here today. Uh, so I currently I'm a, a volunteer policy advisor for Rare Diseases International. And previously, I have chaired the, the International Rare Diseases Research Consortium, IRDIRC, for the past three years, uh, which I joined uh, since its inception back in 2011 in representation of my organization, Fondazione Telethon an Italian charity that is uh, funding and supporting and developing research for rare genetic diseases. After uh, more than 20 years as a researcher myself in the field of rare diseases. Wonderful, thank you, uh, Lucia. Uh, our third panelist is Dr. Eric Sid. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining the call. Thank you for inviting me here, Sean. Uh, my name is Eric Sid. I am a uh, program officer within the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at the National Institutes of Health in the US, the NIH. Um, I'm, I work with primarily with our public health programs that are focused on rare diseases within our division of rare diseases research innovation, and I'm glad to be here as part of this panel today. Great. Thank you, Eric. And finally, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Peter Robinson. Uh, welcome, Peter. Thank you, Sean. Uh, yeah, I have degrees in computer science and medicine and practiced as a pediatrician and medical geneticist at the Charité Hospital in Berlin. Germany. And since 2016, I've had a, a genomics bioinformatics position at the Jackson Laboratory for uh, uh, genomic medicine in Farmington, Connecticut. <clears throat> Great. Thank you very much, Peter. So we have a wonderful breadth of experience here today. So I'm excited to hear what all of you have to say about this topic. Uh, I'm going to dive right in uh, by setting the scene. And uh, Dominica, I'm going to put this question to you. If you could tell us what, what is a patient registry or database? What does it do and, and how is it used uh, in research and by clinicians? Yes, a registry is a, a, an organized system, well-organized system in order to collect standardized information on a group of patients with a specific diseases or a condition. Uh, traditionally, they are established by a research institute, institution, academics, but now, since several years to tell you the truth, also they are established by patients. Mm -hmm. So what do they collect? They, they collect uh, several information, 
it's very important that this information should be standardized, as I said, but we will speak, uh, we will uh, deeply develop this issue later on. Uh, they collect clinical data, data, genetic data, and biological data, and sometimes are linked to biobanks. So the objectives of the registries are wide. It depends. It depends. First, they, they should um, collect information, for example, to study the natural history of the disease. They uh, develop research questions in order really to push research. They, mono, they monitor safety of drug, or they, for example, they develop standards of care and uh, monitor also and improve quality of of life of uh, patients. So it's very important to set up a, a, a correctly a registry, which is really not a database. Uh, it's quite different. And it's very important that this, this uh, instrument uh, follow rigorously quality, quality of data and quality of registry. Quality of data is quite different. It's a part of the quality of the registry. But uh, nevertheless, so we should really train the, the team in order to, to have a correct case definition of the, the disease that we want or the condition that we want to collect. We should define the target population. We should also identify correctly the data source and then control the duplicate of cases. Most importantly, we should use an international standards for coding, for nomenclature, data entry, and so on. So finally, this instrument should give accurate data, accurate information, if we want to provide, to push, to foster research for the benefit of the research, but essentially for patients. So, and finally, we should also say that these registries, these, these tools should be complete, should follow the rule of completeness, otherwise they are not very useful. And in few words, now we are pushing all together as international community to follow the fair principles, meaning findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable um, principles. So in order to not create silos among different street, um, instruments, but we should, of course, upon the conditions to give the possibility to share data and to give the interoperability of data. Wonderful, Dominica. Thank you. That's a great introduction. And you've touched on a, a lot of points that I think we'll be covering uh, through the rest of the, the webinar. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. Um, one is, is that the, obviously the data, the, the usefulness of the registry is going to depend very much on the quality of the data that comes in. So I think all of you will, will probably have opinions on that. But um, Lucia, maybe I can just ask you, uh, very briefly, because I know you deal with biobanks. What is the role of biobanks in these types of registries, and how is that data um, moved from the biobanks into a, a patient registry? Thank you, Sean. Yes, this is a very important effect, um, as aspect of collecting information, but not only information from patients. So biobanks collect biological material from patients uh, that live with the rare disease. And of course, uh, this uh, biological material needs to be associated to data that are as accurate and uh, as complete and as standardized as uh, Domenica mentioned for registries. Uh, biobanks are fundamental, a fundamental resource for research on rare diseases because due to the rarity of patients, being able to conduct a research on the actual uh, biological material is uh, really challenging, especially from, for some ultra-rare disease. And so the underlying uh, principle that internationally uh, the community is trying to adopt is to make biobanks internationally accessible and to be able to make the biological samples visible, accessible, and distributed across different countries. And to do so, several international programs have been launched and set up. Among these, uh, I would uh, speak about Europe, since uh, we are based here, 
the, the initial uh, seed for uh, a network of biobanks uh, is a Eurobiobank network that uh, became the network of a big uh, European program called RDConnect, uh, having the main goal of linking the data and the information uh, coming from registries, from biobanks, and very importantly, from the omics uh, area, where I'm sure Peter can contribute uh, very importantly, so that uh, uh, the patient is at the center as the main source of uh, uh, the uh, information of the biological material and all the data that can be connected uh, all together. Uh, this program, our Deconnect, uh, has now uh, been taken up uh, in the European Joint Program on Rare Diseases and in the uh, virtual uh, platform for uh, resources that is being developed there. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you very much, Lucia. Um, Maybe, um, Peter, I'll come to you next just to, to talk about some of these uh, genomic databases um, and how, how they're working, what successes have been achieved, and uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what, where the gaps are, what's missing. So I think in the, in the context of standards and, and fairness, as Domenica explained to us, um, it, it, it might be good to start with a simple example. So um, 20 years ago, uh, databases were not fair in the field of human genetics. And so for instance, uh, let's take the concept amyotrophy. That, that's uh, a medical word that means muscle wasting. Um, and there are a total of about 10 different synonyms for that word, such as skeletal muscle atrophy. And so if different databases are using different words to store the same concept, then computers cannot exchange information between those databases. Um, so one, one thing that's um, very important is to get all of the databases, all of the registries, all of the resources in a field to agree upon how to call things. And um, so one of the things that, that my group has been in, involved in is the development of the human phenotype ontology. Um, this, this is a, a hierarchical structure of concepts with definitions and synonyms um, that um, not only provide a, a standardized way of naming things, but also allow you to use that as a computational tool. And so, for instance, if you wanted to know, you know, find all samples in, in a database or, or a biobank that have an abnormality of muscle, well, there are hundreds of different abnormalities of muscle with, and they all have different uh, ontology terms, but you can roll them up in, in a search using the hierarchy of the ontology to, to find all of those uh, samples at once. Um, so that, that's one important thing. Um, an, another important uh, item is, is how to uh, actually arrange this information because it's not the case or it's not always the case that you're just interested in one single concept such as skeletal muscle you might be interested in finding all patients that have uh, a mutation in a certain gene and have an abnormality of skeletal muscle and so you need a you need a schema you need a you need a, a structure of how to arrange your information to send to the database to perform that query um, and um, an, another um, a project that that we've been involved in with the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health uh, is is uh, called the the Phenopacket schema, and that's essentially a schema that um, has slots for phenotypic features, for numerical measurements, for treatments, uh, for genomic findings, and um, this is part of a, a much larger suite of standards that the Global Alliance, the GA4GH is preparing for all aspects of genomics data. And so if, if one can imagine that um, databases across the world have adopted these standards and these, these ways of exchanging information between computers, so-called APIs, then uh, you, with uh, one query, uh, you could basically ask biobanks all across the world uh, for relevant samples, relevant for your experiment, and um, find them in a much more efficient and, and fast uh, fashion uh, than if you had to formulate a different query for each of 10 
biobanks that you you wanted to to learn from. Mm -hmm. right, thank you, Peter. And you you you've dived into a, a few of the topics that we'll, we'll certainly be covering, especially under standardization. And I'm interesting interested to find out some of the other challenges, uh, you know, that um, similar to the ontology that you mentioned. Um, that have been cropping up, but um, let me let me come to Eric just to get your your input. And obviously, the NIH is very interested in this topic. They they deeply involved in uh, researching and treating rare diseases. So, uh, what what do what's you, your involvement and what um, successes have you seen at at uh, in setting up these registries? Great question, Sean. And I'll I'll piggyback on something that Lucia said earlier, which was that. You know, registries are really where how you center patients in this discovery process of research. So a lot of the times when I'm talking to patients about registries, I like to think about stories. And, and basically, registries are tools to help convert stories into data. They provide the structure necessary for researchers to ask the questions that individual stories might be sharing, but to look at a population-wide question. So an uh, example that I will often use for patients is to think of, you know, often all of us have meals that we've, you know, grown up eating that we want to be able to pass on to our children or to others. And how we talk about those meals are using recipes. And we use standards such as maybe measuring, so grams versus pounds, ounces, milliliters, cups, these different tools and standards help us then take those different meals and really be able to provide them and, and kind of give the same instructions each time exactly on what we're doing. The oftentimes difficult things uh, for patients is many patients are able to easily express their stories either in person, social media, et cetera, but converting that into some type of data, into structure that then allows us to take those stories individually from each of those patients together and bring them together and find meaning is really the question. Oftentimes where the NIH finds that we have to be able to help um, innovate and, and create meaning within rare diseases is really starting at the beginning of creating the natural history uh, and understanding of a disease. And, and what that means is that in, in the very starting point is understanding how a disease affects not just one patient, but really many different patients that might have that disease and how that affects them over time. And, and again, that story of each of your individual experiences for each patient and their family, we then allow the questions that we're asking to be asked for each other person involved in that registry. So compiling that all together allows us to then get a sense of really how disease progresses in its natural state for everyone that has that over time. And, and again, uh, Peter mentioned many different ways that we can start to structure and standardize that this adds together into our body of knowledge that researchers can then start asking questions such as if they eventually are, are, are aiming towards a treatment, what is the difference that would happen with this treatment compared to what naturally normally occurs if you don't have a treatment for that disease? Go ahead, Dominica. Yeah, uh, I would like to <clears throat> underline that the registry uh, where it's time consuming, resources consuming, and uh, so I think that we should really take into account uh, how to establish a good uh, team uh, for a good uh, registry. So I, there are several rules uh, and uh, I encourage um, scientists or patients that they are willing to, to start to maintain a, a registry uh, to, to have uh, really uh, the uh, quality assurance on that meaning. So they should establish uh, a governance. So I think there is a, it's very important to have a governance system, meaning a clear definition of the objectives of the registry, main objectives, secondary objectives. So it's not uh, you know, a generic registry, but specific one. We should also identify the stakeholders, including patients that are active actors let's say so uh, build a, a team dedicated to this uh, to, to this tool uh, and then approach to healthy problems ethical legal issues including privacy which is very important and are there are the different rules among countries in europe in, in, uh, in usa and in, especially if we want to share data among, at the global level, we have to take into account this issue. And finally, the sustainability. The sustainability is really critical because sometimes we see 
one great uh, registry that is great. The scientists are really dedicated. They publish, but then if they don't have a sustainability, they, they have to stop it. So it's quite important. And then in this framework, uh, training of the team is very important. The, the continuous training, because the, the, the team should really have in mind which, what is the case correct case definition for one disease, which are the data source, correct data source, which is the correct coverage geographically, for example, and so on. So there are several rules that we should really follow in order to have high quality data for high quality studies, which can improve the research, I mean, foster the research and serve as a, a, a scientific uh, tool for research. I think this is really important, the sustainability I would like really, and then set up IT, um, IT form, infrastructure, following the FAIR principles. So we cannot just invent the wheel, but there, there are several, several publications, well-established principles, as I said, the FAIR, and then follow the data quality, which is different from the quality of the registries. It's inside the, the quality of uh, the registry. So then we, we should disseminate this information. Otherwise, there is a big frustration because patients collaborate, contribute, but they want to know also how they, they, their data are used. So dissemination, good information or dissemination, and then also publish, so through uh, peer review publication and other, other documentation. Finally, I recommend also the audit, external audit. We cannot be, you know, just uh, embedded in a structure, but we should um, create an audit, audit system, external audit system, in order to ensure that our data are really good quality, of good quality, yeah. So if I may continue on uh, what Domenica just said and uh, going back to biobanks, so everything that you said, Domenica, applies to biobanks. It's uh, so important, every single point. And in addition to that, uh, we uh, need to consider that biobanks uh, have the additional let's say, physical uh, nature of biological samples. Uh, that means uh, that even the way, also the way these uh, samples are collected, uh, stored, uh, processed, that uh, is very important and standardization is fundamental in order to ensure reproducibility of uh, the experiments. Uh, you can think of experiments being set up with samples coming from very different biobanks because the patients are so scarce and are scattered in different labs in different countries, sometimes in different continents. Therefore, uh, having robust uh, standard operating procedures that are shared among uh, biobanks is very important. There is uh, a set of these uh, SOPs that are, for instance, uh, published in the website of uh, Eurobiobank that I mentioned uh, before, but there uh, are other places where you can find uh, these uh, standard operating procedures. And it is fundamental that uh, the investigators who will receive the samples know exactly how the samples have been prepared and treated so that they can really rely on, uh, on the results that we will have with their uh, research. Uh, finally, the sustainability is uh, doubly important because uh, here you do not only uh, have to deal with data, but also with a structure that uh, will preserve the samples, collect, collect preserve, and uh, work out the samples before distributions. And, and so sustainability is very important. And very often when thinking about funding to rare diseases research, this kind of infrastructures are disregarded or are neglected while they are so important. Mm -hmm. So um, this, this all feels a little bit overwhelming, uh, you know, as somebody who's outside of this. It seems like there's so much that is needed uh, to set up one of these registries. So, Eric, maybe I can, I can ask you, so where, where do 
do people go if if there's a patient group which i think is a, is fascinating that there's patient groups out there that are setting up registries so clearly there's a huge need for it but if somebody wants to do something like this where do they go to find this information to get these these best practices yes it's a great question. So I would encourage uh, patient advocacy groups and uh, patient leaders that are starting to get organized. Um, there are some resources that both NCATS and other agencies have uh, made available. So one of them is called the Rare Disease Registry or, or Radar Program. You can find that at registries.ncats.nih.gov. And that just provides some general language on understanding of what uh, the background behind registries are and how to get started in the process of organizing your community uh, to start developing a registry, um, at the very least a, a contact registry to start. Registries may seem overwhelming. Dominica provided a great overview, of, but there's so much to unpackage there that I find myself doing the, very much the same as what you were saying, Sean, just thinking of there's so many steps involved in that process. Um, that radar tool that I was mentioning earlier provides a stepwise process to get involved uh, as a patient organization on moving forward with the development of a contact registry. But really the important thing is really understanding what is the research question that underlies this registry that you're starting to build. Um, as an example, one of the things that I, I find uh, oftentimes limited amongst uh, many of the rare disease registries that I've looked at is that not all of them will ask questions about demographics. Um, for example, uh, race, ethnicity, or the background of the individual uh, participants in that registry. Um, as someone that's looking into understanding equity issues and disparities amongst different rare diseases, that's an incredibly important data point for me, just to see how diverse the population may be in that registry. And then again, from a patient perspective, that, that information is incredibly useful because that might help your community say, well, maybe we are collecting information from one group but not from another. Are we asking everybody what language that they may speak at home? Do we have our registries forms available in those languages? Those are easy ways to start to see there may be gaps in the research questions that we're asking, unless you upfront really try to understand what you would want this registry to investigate. So really starting with a good framework, having a good understanding, and just understanding this is a marathon, not a sprint, and starting to build some of that data collection at the beginning point with some good standards and understandings is really important to start this process. And, and again, I would encourage some of you to look at those resources if you have any questions about how to get started. Perfect, thank you, Eric. Uh, Peter, go ahead. So um, one thing that I think is important to understand about registries and their use to understanding rare disease treatments is the fact that if you're doing a study on a common disease, you can easily find a hundred or a thousand or many thousands of patients to test a new medication. And this means that the statistics, the, the mathematics that you use to determine whether a treatment is better than another or than placebo uh, works better. So in general, it's a rule that the more data you have, the more power the statistics have. But rare diseases by their nature are rare. And so um, typically you have many smaller studies with 20 patients, 50 patients or less that barely are enough to get statistical power. And so one of the goals, I think, moving forward is to combine the results of individual studies. Um, and, and that's been very difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that typically uh, clinical studies in rare disease do not make the primary data available. These studies are often paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. And um, if successful, typically they're published as paper, but not in computational form that would allow you to easily search over that or do a secondary analysis. And many studies never get published at all. Um, another issue is that the, um, in order to combine results from different studies, you have to use uh, comparable outcome measures. And just as an example, um, when you give a, a patient with, uh, let's say, a, a muscular dystrophy, a treatment, you're not measuring do they get better or not. You, that's, that you can't really measure that. You have to measure something specific. And so, for instance, you could measure how many uh, meters can a patient walk in six minutes, or you could measure how long does it take for a patient to walk 100 meters. They sound like they're the same thing, but it's not possible to just com combine data from that that are using different uh, measures like that um, statistically. 
Uh, and so um, the community ha has not really agreed on what the recommended measures are for for treatments. There's no there there are some attempts at that. There's some common data elements, but um, in in general, there, there's still a lot of heterogeneity uh, that's preventing us from combining efforts. So I, th I think what we really need are are standards. We need some some way of sharing the data from uh, a comprehensive collection of studies performed in rare disease patients. And we need some agreement as to what are we actually measuring. So maybe I can ask, because uh, you've all raised great points about some of these challenges. And the one thing that I was I was thinking is some of the, the challenges that Eric was was talking about, uh, you know, language barriers and cultural barriers as well. These must be compounded when we're internationalizing these registries, right? So, so um, maybe, Lucia, I can ask you this, this question. What, what are some of these additional challenges that are specific to internationalization? And, and also, if you could possibly touch on some of the specific challenges with a rare disease. Um, I know Peter covered the fact that, that there's very few patients, but are there any other specific challenges to the rare disease community? Well, let me start with a very basic problem. That is the problem that even the recognition and official uh, identification of a rare disease, of a disease as rare at the country level is uneven across the world. And uh, of course, this makes it quite difficult in the first place for patients to be recognized as rare disease patients, but also with everything that is associated with their status uh, and so their inclusion in registries at the national and international level. For this reason, Rare Diseases International has started a, a, a working group and uh, has worked at defining, at, at proposing a definition of rare disease as a guideline that could be taken up uh, by countries that do not have uh, still official definitions of rare diseases and could be taken as a, a guiding, a set of guiding principles for that. So I think that is very relevant and uh, living in the Western part of the world it may not uh, seem uh, an important problem, but it is uh, in, a, in a larger portion of the globe. Um, having said that, uh, the issues of uh, language is uh, uh, very important and we are all familiar and, uh, and uh, automatically think of English as uh, the language that is used for exchanges, but uh, there are efforts uh, to produce um, resources in different languages that allow, um, allow different populations to have access and to benefit uh, from uh, the whole, let's say, pipeline of knowledge, uh, data collection, research, uh, research development, and so on. And uh, this is something that in particular has been taken up by IRDIRC, by the International Rare Diseases Research Consortium, where a dedicated task force has addressed specifically the difficulty of indigenous populations to have access to uh, di the diagnosis of, uh, of a rare disease exactly due to this, uh, this uh, important gap language gap, uh, even within a country, of having part of the population uh, that are indigenous populations that uh, are really invisible and uh, untreatable. So internationally, there are many efforts to address this. Of course, it's a huge problem. problem. Uh, but any uh, small step forward uh, is really very important because it can serve as an example and uh, serve as a seed for further development. Sean, if I can add to that, uh, Dominica mentioned a number of really great points earlier, and I just want to call attention back to, she was discussing uh, both sustainability as well as governance. And I think those are incredibly important issues. Um, when you're talking about a, a rare disease, and again, thinking about the registry that underlies some of the research that's occurring in that rare disease, researchers may come and go. 
their projects may extend for very particular points of, of, of uh, very, very kind of uh, niche questions within a disease. And they may come to then the next project um, move on to another disease. It's important for there to be a close collaboration between researchers and patient advocacy organizations to provide a very uh, whole framing uh, governance model where really you're looking at all the different types of research that are needed within this disease. And again, going back to what Peter is saying, thinking about the standards required for different researchers, but also for the disease community to be able to be able to progress with the research in that um, uh, field. So uh, I think, again, thinking about this in the long term, you don't want to make it so that the registry is dependent on a single researcher um, or maybe even a single organization. You have a number of different partners involved and really thinking about how that uh, should be managed in terms of, again, thinking about the, the research direction for the disease as a whole. Yeah, I would like to add that, uh, uh, as we said, uh, yeah, registry is uh, just one word, but it's a, a really complex concept. So reach of uh, different aspects and so on and so on. So uh, for this reason, um, at uh, our institute, Instituto Superiore di Sanità, which is based in Roma, in Italy, uh, in 2014, we started an international summer school on rare disease registries and verification of data. So uh, in a few days, we will start, we will, uh, um, start the new edition, 2022. And uh, it's very important to, to train not only professionals, not only medical doctors or curators of registries, but also patients. So the summer school, it's open and free of charge for all interested persons, stakeholders, teams that are willing to start or maintain a registry. This is very important. Of course, the common language is English. And I understand, I understand what Lucia said, that there are several barriers, language barriers. Nevertheless, we have to use one, at least one common language, which is English. But it's, it's important to say that it's true that you need to, to learn theory. So we have three days, the first three days, on governance, uh, sustainability, healthy problems, and so on and so on. And last two days, practical, uh, practical activities. So you, in fact, we call it bring your own data and you make your verification of data. So I think that we need, we need um, training. We need the such kind of examples all over the world if we want really to create an international uh, um, community working together. So um, please join the efforts and let's continue together. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dominica. So uh, I'd like to, to turn the conversation back to the data to, to dive into that a little bit. Um, we're not going to have time to, to get into the weeds on everything. I mean, I, I have a list of six or seven questions here that I would love to ask, but um, can we talk uh, a little bit about the critical factors for data collection? And Peter, I'll, I'll come to you with this, a few of these questions. So um, how is balance achieved in collecting sufficient data, but not over collecting data? And what factors should be considered when we're collecting data? And I'm thinking sort of ease of collection, burden to the patient or the clinician. Um, and then we've talked a little bit about variations in terminology and, and practice. So maybe you could just talk to some of those and then I could open it up. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's an enormous question and it really does depend on the context of each individual project. But um, I, I would say the experience has shown that it's, actually collecting clinical data is, is typically the most expensive and most difficult part uh, of any clinical research project. Um, this is because the electronic health record systems that are, are in use are simply not designed for, for research, obviously. Um, and in many cases, they're, they're better adapted at, at billing than at supporting patient care. Um, and for this reason, there, there's um, basically two strategies. One is to ask uh, clinicians or other curators to enter data outside of the, the actual clinical records. Um, and in, in medical genetics and human genetics, there are tons of programs that uh, allow you to enter um, human phenotype ontology terms and, and, and many other kinds of data. Um, and the other 
uh, approach is to try to um, extract data from electronic health record systems using um, just basically doing the best that you can. And uh, there are um, uh, uh, there there are uh, you know tons of approaches that that do this. Um, typically, though, it's it's difficult for rare disease because the the features that we're interested in in rare disease are often so rare that they do not have uh, codes in in the electronic uh, health record, such that they're they're written in free text in a clinical note. And this means that you're required to use text mining, um, which uh, you know typically text mining is can be up to 90% accurate on published medical texts. But if you go into clinical texts from a hospital, um, there there's so many other things going on that 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 the accuracy typically drops to to 60% or so. And just as an example, you know we're doing text mining in, in of clinical records, and we we. Um, in, in a new project, we initially found that many people were found to have myocardial infarction, heart attack, which is strange. And when we looked at the data, we saw that um, many of the records had a warning. If you have a myocardial infarction, call the emergency number, which in the US is 911. Um, but that actually wasn't a finding about the patient. And so um, there are many things like that, that that make it currently very difficult. Uh, to extract the information you need for uh, rare disease uh, research from electronic healthcare uh, systems. If I can add just a few words, uh, what I suggest um, is uh, um, to, to establish, for example, a general registry, uh, population-based, for example, with a common data set. Uh, now it's uh, maybe too specific, but with a set of data which are transversally in common with many rare diseases. And then starting from there, you can have a nested registry, meaning that you can develop a specific disease, specific disease registry. So you have a general registry, like we have this, this example we have in Italy, it's a national registry for rare diseases, which cover more than 500 rare diseases. Of course, we collect few data, okay? But from there, we can generate specific registries, which is very important. Then our registries, disease based, and then you co can collect specific variables for that disease, specific disease, and you can go deeper. So this is a, a useful strategy, I think. I would agree with Dominica. So I, I like to think of it almost like a three-course meal. And what you're thinking about is the, the main entry. Uh, everyone may have the same main entry, but you might want to adapt different types of, of modules or different types of appetizers desserts as needed. So what you're looking for is you may have some general questions you're asking in common. And then as new research uh, opens new opportunities, new questions, you add right. to that. Right, right. This is a great, a powerful tool, you know? Because then you can have a several, several specific registry disease registries for specific research questions, and it's very, very powerful, of course. But then you need again <clears throat> resources, human resources, economical resources, and sustainability is very important. Something I, I wanted to touch on that came to mind when we were talking about this is, is um, so we, we just talked about data, some of those challenges. What about the other side? Uh, Eric, maybe I'll ask you this question. When someone is querying the database, what are the challenges there with finding the right information? And uh, is there a way that databases can be set up uh, or registries can be set up so that uh, the queries are more easily done or that the, the data that comes out uh, is more valuable. Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll turn back to first thinking about governance because part of the question you may want to also be asking is who has access to the data? So this is why it's important to really make sure it's, it's not just starting from researchers, but registries are really including researchers, patients, patient advocacy groups. And the reason I mentioned that is because uh, Peter had mentioned this earlier, um, some of the questions that you might be asking and some of the data that might be gathered if it's proprietary, if it's accessible to everybody or if it's only accessible to those that maybe belong to a certain organization or, or company, um, that's the first and foremost question you need to be able to ask is how is the framework that you're setting this up? Who will be, have the ability to ask which, quite, what kind of questions? Who has access to that? And then how are you seeing that evolve over time? 
Um, the a good example of this may be that the again, and, and this goes back to thinking about the the aim of the research. What is of the registry? What is the research question that underlies this? So, um, if you're thinking about making a, this uh, registry to really help support uh, perhaps therapeutic development, then to what Peter was saying earlier, clinical outcome assessments and tying the types of queries that you're going to ask about those clinical outcome assessments may be very important because what you might be looking for is really some comparison data to see how your uh, this uh, again, natural course of the disease, natural history of the disease may eventually compare against when you have a new treatment that you developed. So having a good understanding of the research uh, questions that underlie the registry, then thinking about the data governance model, who has access to that. And then th that's really where I think the starting point of thinking about these questions about querying really begin. If I may uh, link to this, uh, I would uh, make a step back and then uh, consider the very first step of collecting the data that requires the consent yes. by the patient. And that is uh, a, another important issue because uh, uh, patients um, are in general are, are willing to share their data, uh, but collecting their consent uh, also uh, needs uh, to be in a way standardized and searchable uh, so that uh, the future use of the data uh, that uh, comes from uh, their specific consent is uh, made easier. And this is something that IRDIRC has been addressed by uh, several task forces to, um, to join expertise by uh, people from different countries and to draft a list of model consent clauses that uh, represent a sort of consensus uh, of uh, the key basic questions uh, or items that should be included in a consent form. So that uh, even registries that uh, start uh, with uh, small patient associations do not have to start from scratch, but already have a guideline that they can uh, refer to. And uh, to move on uh, on, on this, uh, also uh, making these uh, clauses accessible uh, and uh, automatable so that uh, they can be uh, computer readable is also an important aspect that, that is uh, being developed internationally uh, to make uh, this uh, aspect uh, easier. I'll also add that as um, when we were participating in that task force of so those model consent clauses, I think the interesting yeah. thing for me also was that many of the questions about the types of research we may be moving towards, we're not even sure what type of um, research data we may be looking at, video data, maybe even um, you know uh, uh, more vocal data, more recorded data. We're, we're, there are all sorts of audio data. I'm sorry, I was referring to that. Um, there may be all sorts of information that we might want to be building these registries towards. So an important thing is you may not know that at the starting point. Uh, again, to, to what Dominic was saying, right. you really want to think about this in a modular way. You want to be thinking about how you can make this registry and add to it as you understand more and more about the disease and as your registry's research questions mature. So being able to keep that in mind with the tools that you're using, these model consent clauses are, are a great example of that because the language written in there was really designed to help future-proof some of the research questions you may eventually ask. In addition to that, what we suggest is to use also a dynamic consent. So meaning that then you don't need to update each time, but it's dynamic. So um, yeah, uh, I agree totally with Lucia, with Eric, but uh, yes, please keep in mind that you can use also the dynamic consent, then allow you to continue your research and be in rule, following the, 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 the rules and LC uh, rules, yeah ethical rules and privacy. And I'm thinking there must be additional challenges also when you're collecting consent and data from people across the world and, and perhaps in countries where um, there are people coming from a rural community, it needs to be in a language that, that you know, might be only spoken by a small group of people. So any, any thoughts from the, the group on that and how we can address that? 
Yeah, the, the consent is a huge chapter, you know, so we can dedicate, we can dedicate just maybe in the future another another session because it's not only, you know, the, the small population or population or indigenous population, as uh, Lucia, Lucia mentioned, but also the um, for children, you need the, the consent for children too or for people, disabled people, for example. So there are several um, rules. Uh, uh, we should keep attention, keep attention to this because it's a very, uh, you know, um, important, important document. And uh, we should really not, um, um, this, not uh, we should follow, the, let's say, and keep safe the patient, the children, the adults, and the disabled people. So the consent is quite, quite important. We, we don't have time, I think, I don't know if the other colleagues want to add, but it's a, a huge chapter of registry here. I mean, one thing that's very important in an international context is that different patients have different experiences with consent. Some, some patients don't even know it. And my experience as a rare disease doc is that some patients tell you before you, when you start to explain, they say, oh, stop, you decide for me. And that's a big temptation as a doctor, but it wouldn't be ethical just to say, okay, yeah, we'll we'll do it. Uh, and 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 so especially when we're um, extending these resources to parts of the world that have less experience with with genomic research, it's really important to understand that that culture and to educate uh, patients uh, accordingly. To add to that, too. If I may, oh, yeah, sorry, please. please go ahead. Thank you. So to add uh, to, to this Elsie uh, topic, uh, the privacy of the data, of course, is uh, very, very important. And uh, it is linked to different legislations. So it can get very complicated by that, because uh, data collected in different countries or different continents uh, respond to different legislations. And uh, again, uh, finding ways to preserve the privacy of, uh, of patients in a way that data are meaningful, useful, and uh, can also bring back a return to the patient without disclosing, <clears throat> sorry, the patient identity is a, a big technical, uh, legal, and ethical issue that is being addressed in, uh, in uh, several uh, in, in several contexts, yes. I just wanted to add two ways that patient organizations maybe be able to think about how they can get involved in this process and really contribute. One is with patient navigators who can sometimes help bridge the gap. So in terms of oftentimes when you're talking about many of these research questions, the language used may be very confusing for a patient. Um, it may take a lot of time to go through and get the specificity required for an answer. So patient navigators that can help uh, with understanding health literacy concerns that patients may have in terms of understanding the questions. Um, Peter can easily talk about many of the different synonyms that might go into um, in, in describing a symptom. Having someone that help navigate that language is really important. Um, another issue too is also even thinking about the burden of, of going through and filling out the information itself. Uh, I've seen some registries that have extended well beyond several, several hours, almost 200 different questions. Um, and, and again, practicality wise, um, you may be talking about diseases where fatigue is a, a symptom of the, of the disorder. So really having patients uh, that can provide some perspective on the most value added questions to ask and, and really the length of the, uh, of the survey instruments being used in the registry so that they can understand the practicality of this and the burden being placed upon patients in, in, in being able to be partners of uh, participating in the registry. So in the last few minutes that we, we have, um, uh, we, I feel like we've touched on so many different parts of this. And, and as Dominica said, I think we could actually have multiple webinars just on these different uh, topics because there's so much to unpack there. But what I wanted to just finish with is um, it's a really exciting area. There's been some great successes. I think there's been a lot of adva advancement in, in many of these types of registries. But um, where do we go next? And how can some of these successes be applied globally to, to, to internationalize these registries more effectively? Uh, so maybe I, I can just go around and, and we can get a, a word from everyone. So uh, Lucia, I'll, I'll pick you to start. Uh, well, this is a, 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 great, a great point, 
and uh, it is uh, the it uh, represents the effort of uh, many organizations in particular rare diseases international set up an initiative uh, to uh, create a network of uh, resources of clinical resources that could be uh, shared uh, with different uh, tiers of, or, or levels of granularity across uh, countries, continents, and across the whole uh, globe. And uh, that is uh, a, an attempt to create a network that encompasses all uh, the countries uh, so that those uh, clinical resources, knowledge centers, are known, visible, linked, uh, and can be used uh, by uh, everybody as much as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter, why don't we have you next? Well, in the, in the nearly 30 years I've been involved in genetics and now bioinformatics research, uh, things have changed enormously. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1990s, nobody was really thinking about standards. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration. But now I would say everybody in the field uh, understands the importance of standards um, and many of the organizations internationally are now in the process of adopting standards. Um, it, it, we're not quite quite there yet, but I would say everybody in the field knows that this is necessary. Um, the, the main difficulties are with with funding, so there, there's not um, there, there's not enough NIH funding or, or research funding in general. Uh, for groups to make standards, to adopt standards, it's, it's not uh, it's not something that you can do um, in a weekend. This requires a lot of software engineering um, and and development. Um, but um, I, I think in general, I'm very optimistic that um, the the situation will continue to improve in the next ten years. Mm -hmm. right, thank you, Peter. And uh, we didn't even touch on funding. I think that would be a whole a whole other webinar in itself. Uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> uh, Dominica. Yeah, um, well, uh, let's see, we discussed a lot about where we are now. Uh, I hope that the next uh, two, three, five years, I don't know, but in the future, we can have a benefit from uh, research in uh, computing, for example. So uh, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, um, of course, I'm, I study registries, as you can understand very well, and I, I published a lot, but my my um, uh, worry is that now these registries we know how to do it we know how to standardize data we know how to collect good data in quality and so on and so on nevertheless we did not make the the jump let's say so we are still you know still linked as a, um, to, to 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 the traditional collection of data so i think that we need something more if we want to win the, the, the challenges linked to rare diseases. So I don't know how, I don't know when, but I do hope that through machine, machines, computers, we can uh, improve these studies. Uh, up to now, of course, we can use, uh, as, as uh, Peter knows very well because he's the father of HPO, we can use HPO, we can communicate, so on and so on. Uh, uh, data are interoperable, more or less, but nevertheless, it's time consuming again and resources consuming. We need some more, some more. And uh, I do hope that uh, research in general, in other fields, not only medicine, not only in biology, maybe in other fields can help us uh, injury in, uh, in uh, uh, maybe informatics and so on and so on can help us to really go on, to, to jump, to jump and go faster. Mm -hmm. in research. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank you. And uh, Eric, I'll give you the last word. Um, I'll just piggyback what both Dominica and, and Peter said by, you know, you have to have data quality, you have to have data standards. And then really after that is really thinking about data sharing. It doesn't help us if you have the quality and standards if, we're, if, if others aren't able to access it potentially. So, and, and this goes back to, back to what Peter was saying earlier. If you have a rare disease, the, the problem in, in rare diseases is really a problem of numbers. We need enough numbers, we need enough access to those different data from many different participants to be able to then create the type of statistical power we need to ask the research questions that we're looking for from these registries. So being able to create models towards data sharing and being able to make sure that the type of data that we're working in is open, not proprietary, 
are incredibly fundamental concepts that need to, to happen more in order for us to be able to ask more questions within the rare disease research space. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All, all great points. Um, but um, And I, I would love to extend our discussion further, but unfortunately we're out of time, so we will have to end our conversation there. Um, a huge thank you to all of our panelists uh, for providing their thoughts on this important subject. Uh, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all previous events in the series at science.org webinars. Uh, this webinar is the fifth in our series of six running this year. The final installment will be available in just a few weeks. If you would like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please email webinar at aaas.org. Uh, Thank you once again to our amazing panel and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. Mm